Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 61. Well, this chapter is an epistle. It's Pehoran's response to Moroni's epistle that we read in Alma, chapter 60. As readers, we have had our own suspicions about why there was a slowness on the part of Pehoran's government to give aid to Moroni and his armies and to Helaman and his armies. Helaman held these same suspicions, as we could tell, in his epistle to Moroni in Alma chapter 58, where he says in verse 34, We do not know the cause that the government does not grant us more strength. Neither do those men who came up unto us know why we have not received greater strength. And then he says, We fear that there is some faction in the government that they do not send more men to our assistance. Then, of course, we know from the previous chapter, Moroni's epistle in Alma chapter 60, that Moroni has his suspicions as well as to why there is this dysfunction in Pehoran's government. He reviews the king men in that epistle and talks about the damage that they have done and the way in which they affected the ability of Pehoran to rule or of the central government to rule, and then says in verse 18 that we know not but what ye also are traitors to your country, saying that perhaps you have joined the cause of the kingmen. So we are wondering as readers, alongside Helaman and alongside Moroni, we would like the full story. We would like to know why Pehoran has been slow to respond to these pleas for support. Well, it's in this chapter that the mystery will finally be solved. We will finally hear from Pehoran, and we will discover what the truth of the matter is. Pehoran will explain in this epistle, and in so doing he will confirm our suspicions and clearly confirm Helaman's suspicions and Moroni's suspicions that there has been a resurgence of the kingmen in the government. Pehoran will uh, explain this with great clarity in the opening of this epistle. He will explain that there are those who do joy in your afflictions, Moroni, and in Helaman's afflictions, and that they are against the cause of the people who are freemen. In other words, he's talking about the kingmen, a resurgence of this movement that we read about in Alma chapter 51. Pehoran will explain that they have led away the hearts of many people and that they have caused a rebellion. They are the ones that have withheld provisions, as Pehoran will explain in verse 4. Then he will tell us, shockingly, in verse 5, that these kingmen, although they are not named, we can assume that that's who is being described here, they have driven me out before them, as Pehoran will say in verse 5, and I have fled to the land of Gideon. This would lead us as readers to assume that the kingmen finally achieved the end that they sought 
in Alma chapter 51. They wanted to get rid of Pehoran, and they wanted to install a king. And this is what they did, and this is what Pehoran is telling us here. Uh, They installed someone in the land of Zarahemla. We'll find out in the next chapter that his name is Pachus, P-A-C-H-U-S. Nibley will tell us that that's an Egyptian name. So here, Pehoran does not name him, but he is uh, telling us that the king men have achieved the end they sought in Alma chapter 51. They have expelled me from the land. I am now in Gideon. And we can remember that Gideon is this city that Alma spoke to in Alma chapter 7 and that they are stalwarts in that city. So it's not surprising that that would have been a place of refuge for Pehoran. So this then is the truth of the matter. Pehoran is under great duress. Provisions and supplies and troops have been withheld in the southwestern quarter of the war, in Helaman's quarter, because Pehoran could only do so much and because of the infiltration of the kingmen. And the supplies and men, provisions and food have been withheld from Moroni and Teancum and Lehi in the southeast quarter of this great Lamanite-Nephite war for the same reason, because the kingmen have actually expelled Pehoran from Zarahemla. He's not even in that city. So now it's in this chapter and in this epistle that we come to a full understanding of why aid has been so slow to come. And we get to see things from the perspective of the ruling class instead of from the perspective of the military class, those in the field who are appealing to those in the office, to use Nibley's phrase. So this is a dramatic overthrow of the government. We'll have opportunity later to consider the meaning and the significance of Zarahemla itself, this capital city, being overthrown. But as Ogden and Skinner point out, there certainly is Old Testament precedent for this type of thing to happen. They say, Book of Mormon period insurrection, rebellion, and intrigue have their Old Testament counterparts in the conspiracies of Abimelech at Shechem, that's in Judges chapter 9, and Absalom at Hebron, which is recorded in Second Samuel chapter 15, and Adonijah, at Jerusalem, which happens in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 5 through 30. So three different examples of that in the Old Testament. So this is what this epistle brings to us. It brings to us a greater understanding of what is happening from Pehoran's perspective. And of course, it brings this same understanding to Moroni. Now, there's another layer of significance here and another layer of uh, meaning and teachings that we can take from this epistle. And that's when we consider the way in which Moroni has blamed Pehoran in the previous epistle in Alma chapter 60 and has assumed that Pehoran has been negligent. Moroni has taken the observable facts that we also could see from reading Helaman's epistle in Alma chapters 56 through 58. And those observable facts were that the government was slow to help Helaman with provisions and supplies, with food, with troops. And Moroni has immediately gone to one explanation for this and one reason, and that is negligence. That's the only possibility that he entertains. Then within that framework of negligence, he talked in the previous epistle about why Pehoran and those that ruled with him might have been so negligent. But it's in this chapter that we find that this was not a matter of negligence at all on Pehoran's part, and so he has been wrongly blamed by Moroni. We get to see then how Pehoran responds to Moroni. 
He does so with dignity and with grace. He does not become defensive, and he doesn't condemn Moroni for treating him in this way. He just tells Moroni in the opening of this letter that I don't joy in your great afflictions, and in fact, they grieve my soul. And then in verse 9, he tells Moroni that I rejoice in the greatness of your heart. He says, in your epistle, you have censured me, but it mattereth not, I am not angry. So the greatness of Pehoran's character will come through in this epistle, and he will put on a clinic for us in demonstrating how one should avoid offense when they've been blamed, and how to respond gracefully to someone who has levied unjust accusations towards you. Pehorn stands out in Scripture as a wonderful and dramatic example in this regard. Elder Neil Maxwell once wrote, and this is in his book called All These Things Shall Give the Experience, We must always realize that in a perfect church filled with imperfect people, there are bound to be some miscommunications at times. A noteworthy example occurred in ancient American Israel. Moroni wrote two times to Pehorn, complaining of neglect because much-needed reinforcements did not arrive. Moroni used harsh language, accusing the governor of the land, Pehoran, of sitting on his throne in a state of thoughtless stupor. Pehoran soon made a very patriotic reply, explaining why he could not do what Moroni wanted. Though censured, Pehoran was not angry. He even praised Moroni for the greatness of your heart. Given the intense mutual devotion of disciples, discussions as to how best to move the Lord's work along are bound to produce tactical differences on occasion. Just as in this episode, sometimes scolding occurs that is later shown to be unjustified. Parley P. Pratt recalled an episode when President Brigham Young chastened him and others for their management of the westward migration. In this instance also, there were two letters of a scolding nature, even alleging insubordination. Of this, Elder Pratt wrote, I could not realize this at the time and protested that in my own heart, so far as I was concerned, I had no such motive, that I had been actuated by the purest motives. Later, it became clear to Elder Pratt that some of those scolded had motives that were not as pure as his. He commented further, Yet I thank God for this timely chastisement. I profited by it, and it caused me to be more watchful and careful ever after. It is worthy remembering that Elder Pratt protested in his heart, not publicly. He took it. Perhaps President Young, like Moroni, might have taken note of how Elder Pratt was even sick at the time. But like Moroni, President Young did not know of the full conditions. The stuff out of which offense is made is all around us, if we wish to seize upon it. What we learn, however, from men like Pehoran and Elder Pratt should give us pause, especially when we may be inclined to take umbrage instead of following the brethren. Well, with those introductory thoughts, there's much to consider with this epistle. Again, there are the tactical things that we learn from this epistle that will help uh, carry us into the next two chapters in Alma, Alma chapters 62 and 63. And there's the truth that comes out about what is happening in the seat of government that we've really been wondering uh, about. And of course, Helaman was really wondering about, and so was Moroni. So we get all of that in this. And then we get this overlay, this other message of how gracefully to deal with one who has unjustly accused us, who has blamed us and has wronged us in the way that Moroni has wronged Pehorn with the charges 
and accusations that he's levied towards him. While Pehoran was being accused of sitting on his throne in thoughtless stupor, he was actually deposed and he was actually uh, removed and kicked out of Zarahemla and was actually in Gideon the entire time. So with that in mind, as we look at the structure of this chapter, we can see that in verses 1 through 3, Pehoran's response via epistle to Moroni is, is what we're going to get. And so he gives us the, the, the opening salutation of this epistle, and um, uh, we'll read that with great interest. Now, in verses 3 and 4, this is when the truth starts to come out. Pehoran describes a large rebellion in the government. And uh, king men are not mentioned, but free men are, and we know who opposed the free men. It was the king men. So we can rightly assume, I think, that this is a resurgence of the king men. Then in verses 5 through 7, Pehoran tells Moroni that he was actually driven out of Zarahemla. This is quite a thing to consider because the last time there was a king in Zarahemla, it was King Mosiah, and that was over a unified kingdom, and he was a very righteous king. Now, of course, then after Mosiah left the kingship, it was chief judges, first Alma, and then Nephiha, and then Pehoran. So now Pehoran has been driven out of Zarahemla, and in his stead, there is this new leader of the kingmen that is, that is on the throne that Mosiah once occupied as a king. So this is quite an outcome. So we read about this in verses 5 through 7 and discover that Pehoran, as he's driven out of Zarahemla, he flees to Gideon, this uh, great city that we read about in Alma chapter 7. This now becomes the new center for the free men here in Gideon, and we see that people are flocking to Pehoran. And he explains that to Moroni, giving Moroni some kernel of hope that uh, something strategically can be done with the free men movement and uh, that he can go to Gideon. And so we'll find that all of that does materialize later. Then we read in verse 8, very troublingly, that the king men do occupy Zarahemla and appoint a king. Uh, here he is not named, but later we'll find that his name is Pachus, P-A-C-H-U-S, as I mentioned earlier. And very disturbingly, we find in verse 8, that these kingmen under Pacchus's leadership actually dare to form an alliance with the Lamanites. So they form an alliance with Amaron. So we'll come back to that. Then, in verses 9 through 14, Pehoran will so beautifully clarify his unity of intent with Moroni. He will say, I, Pehoran, do not seek for power, save only to retain my judgment seat that I may preserve the rights and liberty of my people. That's the only reason he would want to have the judgment seat. And he says, My soul standeth fast in that liberty in which the God in which God has made us free. And remember that at the end of Moroni's epistle, he had just told Pehoran that I seek not for power but to pull it down. So Pehoran really has unity of intent with Moroni, and he's making it beautifully and abundantly clear here in these verses. Then Pehoran tells Moroni to come meet him in Gideon. He does this in verses 15 through 18. This is really a reflection of what Moroni said in his epistle, uh, where Moroni was, was giving this ultimatum, and it was worded like a threat, that I'm going to come to you, and I'm, I'm going to clean house, essentially. Well, Pehoran takes that, and he doesn't take offense to the threat, but he says, that's actually really good strategy. I'd like you to do that, Moroni. And so that's what he tells him in verses 15 through 18. He tells him to definitely do leave your men 
in that quarter. Leave Tiankum and Lehi there and do come to Gideon and gather who you can on the way and we will work together to repossess Zarahemla. Then interestingly in verses 19 and 20, Pehoran will tell Moroni that, that Moroni's epistle has actually emboldened him to go against his brethren, those who have defected to the king men and those who might be sitting on the fence. Uh, there would have been many that fit that latter description as well. Then uh, in the final verse, this is Pehoran's valediction, uh, the end of his epistle, and he gives his well wishes to Moroni and also to Tiankum and Lehi, giving Moroni full confidence and us full confidence as we get this amazingly enlightening response from Pehoran that he indeed is unified with them. Now returning to verse 1. Behold, now it came to pass that soon after Moroni had sent his epistle unto the chief governor, he received an epistle from Pehoran, the chief governor. And these are the words which he received. I, Pehoram, who am the chief governor of this land, do send these words unto Moroni, the chief captain over the army. Behold, I say unto you, Moroni, that I do not joy in your great afflictions. Yea, it grieves my soul. So the afflictions in question here are not Pehoran's offenses. They are not the way in which Moroni offended Pehoran. But instead, the afflictions in question here are Moroni's afflictions. Pehoran does not make it about himself. Uh, instead, he talks about Moroni's great afflictions. And of course, implied in that are Helaman's great afflictions as well. Then he says in verse 3, But behold, there are those who do joy in your afflictions, yea, insomuch that they have risen up in rebellion against me. So this is his incredibly graceful way of addressing Moroni's afflictions, uh, deflecting any sense of offense, and then uh, using that as a segue to talk about those who have come up against him. They are those who do joy in Moroni's afflictions. Yea, insomuch that they have risen up in rebellion against me, and also those of my people who are free men. Yea, and those who have risen up are exceedingly numerous. So we read about this movement in Alma chapter 51. We read about free men and how they were formed to oppose the king men, and the king men wanted to oust Pehoran from his seat. They wanted to do it through the auspices of the law, as we could read in, in Alma chapter 51, but it looks like they're doing it in a more heavy-handed fashion now uh, in this instance as, as Pehoran relates this. Again, king men are not named, but we can assume that that's, um, that is who leads this rebellion. This especially becomes evident here in a moment because uh, after they removed Pehoran from the judgment seat, they didn't install another chief judge. They installed a king. Pehoran makes it clear here that those who have risen up, these kingmen, are exceedingly numerous. Verse 4, And it is those who have sought to take away the judgment seat from me. So in other words, those from Alma chapter 51 who sought to do that, that have been the cause of this great iniquity. Kingmen, for they have used great flattery, and they have led away the hearts of many people, which will be the cause of sore affliction among us. They have withheld our provisions and have daunted our free men that they have not come unto you. So the free men are dealing with internal dissension. Moroni is right. The inner vessel needs to be dealt with. There are problems in the inner vessel, and that's why the outer vessel is not being treated as it should by the inner. We can't help but see the word flattery in verse 4. There it is again. That's what Amalekiah used. That's what Sherem used. 
and that certainly is what the kingmen used, and they have led away the hearts of many people. President James E. Faust once said, Satan is the world's master in the use of flattery, and he knows the great power of speech. President Harold B. Lee once said, Flattery oft-times means to merely satisfy the individual's vanity and sometimes to ingratiate the flatterer into the good graces of the flattered. Now, Moroni is undoubtedly wide-eyed as he is reading this from Pehoran, as are we. So we come to verse 5 and discover that things get worse. And behold, they, meaning these kingmen, have driven me out before them. They have achieved what they initially set out to achieve uh, so long ago when they wanted to depose Pehoran. And I have fled to the land of Gideon with as many men as it were possible that I could get. Remember that when uh, Alma started his mission, uh, he left the judgment seat in Zarahemla. He began to preach, and the first sermon that he preached is given in Alma chapter 5, and that's to the people of Zarahemla. We, we know at this time that there is wickedness among the people of Zarahemla, and there's, there's quite a bit of rebuke in Alma chapter 5 to those people. Then uh, he goes to Gideon. That's his next stop. And he preaches in Gideon in Alma chapter 7. The righteousness quotient is much higher there. Uh, And Alma makes that clear. And he he reveals doctrines about the atonement of Jesus Christ that I think could only be given to an audience of that caliber. There are other times, too, when we get great impressions about the city of Gideon. And this is yet one more. Gideon is is clearly a source of strength still to this day, and so it is a place where the free men thrive, and this becomes the new center for the free men, and Pehoran is their leader. So he says, um, he went to Gideon with as many men as it were possible that I could get. So this this clearly refers to a, a kind of a pool of fence sitters that are influenced either by the king men or influenced by the free men. And that makes sense, too, when we, we read about Moroni's plan to leave the southeast uh, uh, quarter of the land where he's uh, in, in, in battle and in war, and to gather people as he journeys to Gideon, because there, there are fence-sitters all along the way that could be persuaded in one way or, or another. So uh, Pehoran gathers as many men as he can uh, as he goes to Gideon. Verse 6, And behold, I have sent a proclamation throughout this part of the land, and behold, they are flocking to us daily to their arms, in the defense of their country and their freedom, and to avenge our wrongs. And they have come unto us insomuch that those who have risen up in rebellion against us are set at defiance, yea, insomuch that they do fear us, and durst not come out against us to battle. So, gratefully, we can see here that Pehoran has amassed a lot of troops here in Gideon, and they're flocking to him daily with their arms. And uh, this is intimidating enough to the kingmen that uh, so far they, the, the kingmen durst not come out against us to battle, as Pehoran says. Now, Hugh Nibley has written this, Why hadn't Moroni heard from them long before? Pehoran immediately explains why. There's a state of complete crisis, not only complete insecurity, but everything was totally disrupted, the communications and everything else. They have taken over the government, and it is those who have sought to take away the judgment seat from me that have been the cause of this great iniquity. They have withheld our provisions and have daunted our freemen that they have not come unto you. They have blocked the way so that they couldn't come to you. It's not only intimidation, but they have taken over everything. Now Pehoran will tell Moroni about Zarahemla. They have got possession of the land or the city of Zarahemla. They have appointed a king over them. 
And he hath written unto the king of the Lamanites, in the which he hath joined an alliance with him, in the which alliance he hath, gre- hath agreed to maintain the city of Zarahemla, which maintenance he supposeth will enable the Lamanites to conquer the remainder of the land, and he shall be placed king over his people when they shall be conquered under the Lamanites. Uh, this is pretty shocking for us to read. Uh, it was, I'm sure, shocking for Moroni to read. Uh, that these kingmen would be so brazen and so foolish that they would actually enter into an alliance with the Lamanites. But it is all in keeping with the behavior that they showed in Alma chapter 51, because in that instance they did want to put a king at the head of Zarahemla, and so we can see that they've done this. And then we read back then that they rejoiced when the Lamanites infiltrated the land, and that they didn't want to fight against the Lamanites. So It wasn't said then that they wanted to form an alliance per se with the Lamanites, but that clearly was their intention back then, and that's why they rejoiced. So now the kingmen are finally able to make good on their intentions, and um, not in a good way, but uh, now they are entering into this alliance with the Lamanites. So definitely a shocking thing to read. So now that Pehoran has established this, he has spoken in terms of facts. He hasn't taken offense but he went right in to the suffering and afflictions that Moroni has experienced and explained why in the opening of his epistle. Now he'll come and offer some more spiritual and emotional first aid in this next section of the epistle. He will clarify his unity of intent with Moroni in a really beautiful and graceful way. Verse 9, And now in your epistle you have censured me, but it mattereth not. I am not angry, but do rejoice in the greatness of your heart. I, Pehoran, do not seek for power, save only to retain my judgment seat, that I may preserve the rights and the liberty of my people. My soul standeth fast in that liberty, in the which God hath made us free. So he sounds very much like Moroni as he says this, and and this, of course, would have given Moroni a great deal to rejoice about. Elder David Arbednar has written this. He says, One of the greatest indicators of our own spiritual maturity is revealed in how we respond to the weaknesses, the inexperience, and the potentially offensive actions of others. A thing, an event, or an expression may be offensive, but you and I can choose not to be offended, and to say with Pehoran, it mattereth not. Moroni, whose army was suffering because of inadequate support from the government, wrote to Pehoran by way of condemnation and harshly accused him of thoughtlessness, slothfulness, and neglect. Pehoran might easily have resented Moroni and his message, but he chose not to take offense. Pehoran responded compassionately and described a rebellion against the government about which Moroni was not aware. Elder Neely Maxwell has written in his wonderful book, uh, Meek and Lowly, He said, Pehoran was not a resentful rejoinder, lamenting the fact that Moroni was foolish without the facts. Pehoran did not engage in sarcasm or bitterness by lamenting that things were at least as rough for him as they were for Moroni and the army. He could have been sarcastic, saying he no longer had any throne to sit upon in a state of thoughtless stupor. He could have justifiably boiled over at the accusation of his being a traitor, telling Moroni to do his job as chief captain and that Pehoran would do his job as governor. Instead, this exchange permitted these two leaders to rally themselves and their forces to retake the city. Moroni, when he received Pehoran's reply, indicated that his heart did take courage and that he rejoiced because of the faithfulness of Pehoran. 
That again is from Elder Maxwell from a book that was a a major influence in my early life, Meek and Lowly. And uh, that statement will come in the beginning of the next chapter when Moroni rejoices because of the faithfulness of Pehoran. Verse 10, And now behold, we will resist wickedness even unto bloodshed. So unity of intent with Moroni. Uh, Pehoran also standeth fast in the liberty in the which God hath made us free. And so we, he says, you and I, Moroni, will resist wickedness even unto bloodshed. We would not shed the blood of the Lamanites if they would stay in their own land. We would not shed the blood of our brethren, meaning those dissenters among them, the king men, if they would not rise up in rebellion and take the sword against us. So Pehoran is talking about two different people that they have had to fight with the sword. Uh, This is a cause of great lamentation, and he and Moroni don't rejoice in the shedding of blood, and they wouldn't have done this if they weren't in a position where they had to in order to defend liberty and freedom. We would subject ourselves to the yoke of bondage if it were requisite with the justice of God, or if he should command us to do so. Uh, We know that there are scriptural instances of that, that it was uh, Alma, the elder's lot, to do that after he had established the land of Helam, or excuse me, Helam, uh, after leaving uh, the, the, the land of Mormon, the waters of Mormon, he, he escaped and he went up into this place that uh, he developed called Helam. And uh, in that land, they cultivated the land and, and began to prosper. I believe the people even wanted him to be the king, and he rejected that. But there he was discovered by the Lamanites and also by his, really, who would have been his archenemy, the chief priest of Noah, Amulon. And it became Alma's task and his people's task at this time to be subject to the yoke of bondage for a period of time. So Pehoran has this awareness that sometimes that that is uh, the task of the disciples of Christ, at least for a period of time. But he says in verse 13, But behold, he doth not command us that we shall subject ourselves to our enemies, but that we should put our trust in him, and he will deliver us. Therefore, my beloved brother Moroni, let us resist evil, and whatsoever evil we cannot resist with our words, yea, such as rebellions and dissensions, let us resist them with our swords. Remember Helaman's father, Alma, and the way that he talked about the word and how it was more effective than any other thing, including the sword. But here in a different context, Pehoran is right. He's saying that the first thing to try and do in resisting evil is to use words. This is a great piece of insight. And then saying that if this isn't possible, then let us defend ourselves and resist them with our swords. That we may retain our freedom, that we may rejoice in the great privilege of our church and in the cause of our Redeemer and our God. So this idea that when words fail, it's appropriate to take up the sword deserves some qualifications. Uh, Ogden and Skinner say, when does God approve of war? Whatever evil cannot be resisted with words or negotiations must be resisted with weapons in order to maintain freedom, religious privileges, and the cause of our Redeemer and God. That kind of war is justifiable. Elder M. Russell Ballard once wrote, We need to remember Edmund Burke's statement, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. We need to raise our voices with other concerned citizens throughout the world in opposition to current trends. We need to tell the sponsors of offensive media that we have had enough. We need to support programs and products that are positive and uplifting. Joining together with neighbors and friends who share our concerns, we can send a clear message to those responsible.
So now that uh, Pehoran has done this and he's said these felicitous and beautiful things, uh, he will now speak tr- strategically with Moroni. Uh, before we go into that, I, I, I'd like to read this final uh, piece of commentary by Elder Maxwell on the grace in which uh, uh, Pehoran treated Moroni in this, in this epistle. He said, Moroni was not the first under-informed leader to conclude that another leader was not doing enough. Nor was Pehoran's sweet, generous response to his beloved brother Moroni the last such that will be needed. Now, Pehoran in verses 15 through 18 will request something of Moroni. And he's essentially taking that thing that uh, reads like a threat in the previous epistle and is saying, you know, that, that is exactly what I'd like you to do. So please come to Gideon. So verse 15, Therefore come unto me speedily with a few of your men, and leave the remainder in charge of Lehi and Teancum, in the charge of Lehi and Teancum. Give unto them power to conduct the war in that part of the land, according to the Spirit of God, which is also the Spirit of Freedom which is in them. Now really, uh, Pehoran is just completely restating what Moroni threatened to do. So it's very interesting how he does that. Verse 16, Behold, I have sent a few provisions unto them, that they may not perish until ye can come unto me. Gather together whatsoever force ye can upon your march hither, and we will go speedily against those dissenters in the strength of our God, according to the faith which is in us. Now remember, we've just read that there are enough freemen that are flocking to Pehoran daily in the city of Gideon, that they are intimidating enough to the kingmen that the kingmen dare not go against them. So their forces are increasing, And Pehoran reasons that if Moroni can come and he can gather forces along the way and gather troops along the way and unite them to the standard of liberty, that by the time he arrives with them in Gideon, they will have a formidable force and they can go against Pachas in the city of Zarahemla. We'll discover that all of this is what happens in Alma chapter 62 in the next chapter. So this is what uh, Moroni proposed in his epistle, even though it was uh, kind of in the tone of a threat. And now this is what Pehorn is proposing uh, here in his response epistle. So again in verse 17, he says, Gather together whatsoever force ye can upon your march hither, and we will go speedily against those dissenters in the strength of our God, according to the faith which is in us. There's an interesting issue of authority here as well, because uh, it seems now that uh, Pehoran, being the chief judge, has now kind of ratified uh, Moroni's intentions to do this. And so, when we look at the uh, the authority of these two and wonder who was the who had seniority to who in the government pecking order, uh, was it Moroni or was it Pehoran? It's quite interesting. And the Book of Mormon student manual says this. Alma chapter 2 verse 16 shows that Alma as the chief judge and the governor of the people of Nephi led his armies against the Amlicites to battle. Moroni had been appointed to be chief captain, and the chief captain took the command of all the armies of the Nephites, which we read in Alma chapter 43 when we were first introduced to Moroni. Moroni would have been appointed to his post under the authority of the chief judge, who in turn received his authority by election from the people. With his right as commander-in-chief of the armies, Pehoran issued orders to Moroni. So that would be the appropriate way to see this. Moroni would have been installed as chief captain by Nephiha. And 
Nephiha then had authority over Moroni. So Pehoran is now the chief judge, he being the son of of Nephiha. And so Pehoran was in authority to issue orders to Moroni. So he is making Moroni's intentions official and telling him to gather forces and come to Gideon. Verse 18, And we will take possession of the city of Zarahemla, that we may obtain more food to send forth unto Lehi and Teancum. Of course, we could add there, uh, we, we can send more food to Helaman and his forces as well. Yea, we will go forth against them in the strength of the Lord, and we will put an end to this great iniquity. So we're breathing a sigh of relief as we read all of this, and we realize just how great Pehoran is, and that if this plan can work, that this uh, un, un, unthinkable damage which has been done, where Pachus has now become the king in Zarahemla, that that can be undone if Pehoran and Moroni join together and go against him. And that, of course, uh, sets us up for what we'll read in Alma chapter 62. Now, Pehoran says this interesting thing in verses 19 and 20. And now, Moroni, I do joy in receiving your epistle, for I was somewhat worried concerning what we should do, whether it should be just in us to go against our brethren. So, Moroni modeled this in Alma chapter 51. He did go against the king men, and he slew them. Uh, many thousands of them, 4,000 of them at that time. But Pehoran reveals that he had some hesitation in this matter. After all, he's the chief judge. But instead of taking offense at Moroni's words, he says that he joyed in receiving Moroni's epistle and that it has emboldened him to go against his brethren. And of course, um, this also refers more broadly to this plan to go back into Zarahemla and to do this daunting thing. Verse 20, but ye have said, except they repent, the Lord hath commanded you that ye should go against them. So reminding Pehoran, it is justified in this case to go against your fellow Nephites. And these who have embraced the cause of the kingmen, uh, they are justified in going against them. So Pehoran has been reinforced in that idea from Moroni's epistle, and he thanks him for it. Now here's the final verse, uh, Pehoran's valediction, and his well wishes for Teancum and Lehi. See that ye strengthen Lehi and Teancum in the Lord. Now that has kind of a tone of command. We can see that Pehoran is still functioning as the chief judge, even though he's been deposed in the way that he has, and he's still speaking in this sense to Moroni as a subordinate. See that ye strengthen Lehi and Teancum in the Lord. Tell them to fear not, for God will deliver them. Yea, and also all those who stand fast in that liberty wherewith God hath made them free. And now I close mine epistle to my beloved brother Moroni. I would say after reading this chapter and this epistle that if you are not a fan of Pehoran by this point, then no one else in the Book of Mormon has reached you or impressed you either. (laughs) Pehoran is truly an incredible character. Well, we have a sense now for what is to come as we turn the page and move into Alma chapter 62. There is a task that lies ahead of Pehoran and Moroni, and it is to topple this newly formed government by the kingmen in Zarahemla. Uh, Reynolds and Sojal have written this as we kind of consider that plan. We may conceive that Pehoran sent his request to Moroni for aid, not without a prayer to him whose servant he was. So that's very interesting wording by Reynolds and Sojal that uh, that's the other graceful thing that Pehoran is doing here is that he's calling upon Moroni for aid instead of um, defending the way in which he did not provide aid to Moroni. He calls upon him for aid in this mutual cause. 
Now, Reynolds and Sojal continue, Pehoran did not ask for help without giving his plans considerable thought. He had them already mapped out, probably inspired and in righteousness formulated. Together with Moroni, they could regain possession of Zarahemla. From its well-stocked supplies, they then would send Lehi and Tiankum adequate food. Yea, Pehoran confidently noted to Moroni in speaking of the rebels, We will go forth against them in the strength of the Lord, and we will put an end to this great iniquity. That is what we have to look forward to then as we move into Alma chapter 62. For now, this brings us to the end of Alma chapter 61. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.